0: Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number six. I am Mike. I'm Joshua. Uh, today's discussion topic will be setting up a hand tool workshop. Uh, but before we get into that, we have a lot going on around here, and it's been a pretty busy few weeks for us. Uh, we just opened up pre-orders for issue four yesterday. woo Yeah! It's, uh, you know, a long time coming, I guess. It seems that way in our minds, just putting things together and bringing them up to that culminating point, except for the fact that this time around, it's, it's different because we started subscriptions with issue three. Yep. So anyone who subscribes is also pre-ordering. So if you subscribe, um, you're all set. You don't have to wait up till, you know, (laughs) 1201, the day of the pre-order, um, to be sure to get the wrapped copy of the magazine, but uh, it's been a lot of fun seeing responses and excitement from people
1: um, writing to us and on social media and things like that. Yeah, definitely. We've been uh, uh, the co- we released the cover of issue four uh, yesterday with the the announcement um, and the cover. There seems to be a theme that's run through issue four. Um, it just kind of naturally developed uh, yeah. this theme of uh, axes or hatchets um, that. Many authors kept bringing up in their articles, so uh, we decided it seemed appropriate that the cover should have a hatchet uh, featured. Yeah, and so we had this picture of a of a hatchet stuck into a stump. And as soon as we launched it, we started seeing a few people putting putting pictures up of that. And um, every issue we have, uh, we have people posting on social media, um, sort of playing off the cover where they're they're laying the draw knife next to kenneth's hand with the draw knife yep. or they're mocking up the cover right next to the magazine it's it's really cool to see it's, that people really fun. uh enjoy that so uh, we love seeing that and people have been we uh, we were joking yesterday with jim we made a new hashtag now it's, yeah uh empty MT
0: mag hatchet yeah Mt
1: mag hatchet so people are taking uh their mock-up issue four cover shots and it, so it's pretty fun it's a lot of cool yeah a lot of cool stuff
0: so stick your axes in a stump and take a picture of it it's <laughs> yeah it's All the cool kids are doing it. All the cool kids are doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, over the past couple weeks leading up to the release of Issue 4, we've been on our blog releasing each article one by one and uh, sort of a summary, some photography from the articles. And so we thought we'd share with you a few uh, snippets from a few individual articles. Um, The first article uh, I'm going to read a snippet of is uh, by Will Lissick, who recently traveled to, uh, actually last fall, traveled to Romania with uh, the French group with the name that translates to Carpenters Without Borders, not to be confused with the Carpenters Without Borders from California. Um, But he traveled there with that group and and several other groups, European groups, to um, engage in this uh, timber frame um, project for this blacksmith shop in Romania. And he, he tells his story, and the, the photography in that article is just super inspiring. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's beautiful. It, it's made us say, okay, so when are we going? When are we going? Yeah.
1: We, we got to go. Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> but uh, it's a really interesting article. Uh, in that article, Will says, There's something captivating to so many woodworkers about the primary processing of materials with the old tools. Taking up the fro, draw knife, foreplane, or hewing hatchet. It's simply a primal connection, a love for the feel of expending human energy. The call is hard to resist. And so uh, I think everyone listening to this, for the most part, will really
1: enjoy that article. Yeah, Yeah, to to hear uh, that story about um, Will's interaction with this traditional culture, and uh, it was just... I read it to my wife, and she said, when are we going? Yeah, When are we going to go see this? So I think... uh, for me this article really connected um and it connected with that what it will say the primal primal yeah. connection it's just like oh man being able to to shape wood with simple tools is just really yeah. uh, touches people i think in a yeah. pretty uh, and, profound and, way and to
0: have it still in places around the world where it still has these deep cultural roots in our you know 20 in the 21st century west very often we we've just forgotten that or lost sight of it. And to see it still as part of everyday life where people get up in the morning, they shoulder their axes, and they head off into the woods. It's amazing. And they yeah. grab their scythe and go up to the pasture. I mean, it's um, it's very neat. Yeah. So that that was really an enjoyable article to work with Will on
1: and to put together. Yeah. And, and you had a piece that I felt, uh, I mean, it was the hardest piece, I think, maybe. That yes. Yeah.
0: Yep. It was, uh, We we definitely started out, I think, with, with intentions that uh, the article kind of steered itself away from that. Almost, <laughs> yeah. Um, we had this idea of measuring uh, pre-industrial and industrially produced furniture to try and figure out what average variations are, like how much irregularity there is in handmade furniture as compared to machine-made furniture. It's, you know, seeing if we could put an just a, a quantity to that to say, okay, well, this is the <clears throat> typical average. For handmade furniture. Yeah, pull
1: out the digital calipers, yeah. measure the drawer Take side, lots of lots measurements and of just measurements. see yeah.
0: how much this varied and and what was considered okay and at what point things start looking a little strange, a little crooked, you know, way too tapered, that sort of thing. Um Well, be,
1: and what was the the initial idea? I mean, you started your article with this yeah. concept. too. Yeah, that- I s-
0: started with that sense that okay, so we're going to compare these things and see what conclusions we can reach I mean and was that that was sort of well,
1: well I mean, you know So we started with um, the idea was you, you know You walk into an antique shop and you see some right form yeah in the corner in the shadows and Anyone who's familiar with handmade furniture knows from across the room. That's a handmade piece right and we were intrigued by this question Where does that come from? How do you yeah. know that that's a handmade piece from that when everything's so obscured that you can't see any patina in the shadows. You can't see all you right. can see is this general shape in these lines. What is it? Is that an irregularity in the surface? Or, you know what is it? So
0: yeah, yeah. And so this this article to, it totally chased chased that concept down in concepts of more abstract things than simple digital measurements. And right. uh, so here's here's a little snippet from it. Um, all pre-industrial furniture tolerances were gauged ultimately by the human eye and human hand. Yes, lines were established with precisely made straight edges, arcs scribed with the needle-sharp tips of compasses, and points laid out with keen awls. But the making of these marks is still subject to the fallibility of human perception and the steadiness of the maker's hand. The accuracy with which a craftsman approaches the lines with hand tools further affects the overall precision. The idealistic pursuits of flat and smooth were clearly tempered by constraints of practicality. In the rough sawn and axe-hewn world of the 18th century, the very slightly scalloped texture left by a smoothing plane on a tabletop might have been the most refined surface ever touched by many, possibly exceeded only by well-made ceramics. Even a four-plane finish on the tabletop underside was well within the range of period sensibilities. So running with that concept, um, these marks left by the maker, and... Are, are these what sets off the the handmade aesthetic you know what defines that and so uh, the article for me was it was definitely a challenge yeah. to write and to pursue you know to to some sort of conclusion what we're getting at when you when you look at a piece of furniture and you have this vague sense that there's something special
1: about it um, but yeah and yeah, uh, definitely. that was in uh, you ended up titling it uh, in pursuit of the handmade aesthetic. Right. right. Not to say that I've captured it yet. No, no, but it's, it's the pursuit <laughs> but we're of trying to, trying to yeah. figure out what is it that uh, that explains that that look and that beauty.
0: Yeah. That's good.
1: And so one of your articles. Yeah, I um, uh, I, I think I mentioned a previous podcast that I wrote a, an article based on the tables video that we made um, showing the pre-industrial table process, how, how you would approach building any table with hand tools. Um, and so what I wanted to do with this article was basically boil it down to the most simple method. Um, here are the steps, here's the order I would take, here's the logic behind the way that the steps uh, uh, proceed well, an, another, and so how you, how I would boil it down. So it's sort of like a pocket guide, as it were. Right. Um, and so I, what I realized before I really worked hard to develop that, my table method, I guess, is, you know, I, when I first started woodworking, I would uh, get in the shop and I mostly just wanted to play and make shavings. And it was just really, really fun. And as I started learning more and more, I really, it was satisfying to get stuff done <laughs> to, right. to, to really be able to work efficiently. And that challenge of working efficiently while making shavings and having fun was really appealing to me so i thought what is the most efficient way for me to um to to work to 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 build furniture like this Mm -hmm. and so um and obviously pre-industrial artisans weren't doing it just for fun right uh they were also trying to make a living so um it just uh was something i wanted to be able to wrap my arms around what's the best way to do this with these tools so um I start out, I talk about each aspect, chopping mortises, cutting tenons, laying out the tops, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in the very beginning, what sort of undergirds um, the, the whole method, I think, to efficient hand tool work uh, is reference faces. And in my article, uh, I wrote this, hand tools rely on reference faces. When you use a square or a marking gauge to thickness stock or to lay out joinery, it is essential that you be consistent about which surface you use for reference. This is important because of human error, but also because it frees you from having to perfectly and consistently thickness and square all sides of a board. With this system, all you need is one flat and smooth face and one square edge, that's it. The rest can be hatchet marks for all we care, and sometimes is. Because all your layout is referencing off the one good face. This system is the key to unlock efficient hand tool woodworking. So I wanted to, you know, outline that from the beginning that reference faces are the key. And once you can wrap your mind around where to set your gauge, where to set your square, on on, which surface of each piece, you can just... Go to town. You can uh, do all the the legs together. You can lay them out. You know, and um, you're not losing time constantly trying to figure out. Oh, you're not measuring anything. You're not trying to um, match one leg to the other because you're doing them all together off right. the same face. It's all consistent. So, um, yeah, I think that that would be uh, it, it was enlightening to me to be able to put that together in a way that made sense for people. So I hope this is helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely yeah. enjoyed the in filming the tables video and seeing talking about the process and working through and also you know all we've seen and all you've seen in your studies of looking at pre-industrial furniture and seeing the marks that were made by the maker in you know, pre-assembly. Mm-hmm. You know, how was right. that efficiently kept separate and things like that. Yeah. It's it's super important when you're looking to go about it in an efficient uh workmanlike
1: manner. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're just we're in issue four. We're deep in four, and I'm yeah. um, actually doing layout right now. We're editing pictures and putting it on pages, and it's yep. It's my favorite part of the process. Yeah, I love this part. It's so fun.
0: Kind of like the the hard work is, I wouldn't say done, but getting there. Yeah, this is the you. really
1: fun part. But besides issue four, we have a new T-shirt that's uh, is being printed right now as we yep. speak. I think actually.
0: Yeah, we, we hope to have uh, some video or photos of the process of printing up yeah.
1: soon. Yeah, and this one is a little bit, as, well, it's definitely very different. Um, we actually commissioned a piece of, uh, commissioned some artwork from an artist uh, in North Carolina, Jessica Rue, um, who I actually also, um, Lost Art Press and myself, we, we commissioned uh, Jessica to paint a painting for, uh, of Jonathan Fisher in his shop for my, my book about Jonathan Fisher. Um, and I loved her work so much that I said, we, she should make a t-shirt for us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we hired Jessica to draw us uh, a shirt and it's her work. If you're familiar with it, it's pretty complex with the layers of color and all the detail and stuff. And I actually, I talked to her, I said, Hey, are we going to be able to screen print this? Cause this is pretty, detail yeah you know how are we going to do this and she showed me links to um other shirts of her drawings that have been screen printed and it's basically a very specific kind of printer that can do it that can really screen print to very uh very detailed levels yeah um and so i talked to that printer we and it was just uh, i'm really excited about yeah. seeing it because the, the drawing i've never actually seen screen, screen printing like this um and we love the concept uh the I we I sent the um, the design out to Jim McConnell and Megan Fitzpatrick, um, editors on our team, and uh, I think it was Megan who fired back. She's like, "All right, a new favorite, my new favorite, and my new favorite." So uh, we will be uh, showing those pictures of the shirt as soon as we get them from the printer, Um, and we we have a new new favorite shirt.
0: Yeah, and with the shirt comes uh, stickers. Yep. That uh, uh, part of the artwork will be on the sticker as well along with you know the the clever catchphrase that goes with it <laughs> yep so stay uh, tuned wait and see yeah uh so outside the world of m and a few things going on again uh you know social media is a, is a great way that we um kind of stay in contact with what's going on in the broader world of of hand tools and um pre-industrial furniture research things like that uh the Colonial Williamsburg uh, Working Wood in the 18th Century Conference took place l- last week. I th- yeah, I think so. Is that last week? Yep. And so we started seeing, I mean, we, we were, were both aware of the con- of the conference. We tried we to figure out how to consider- get there. Yeah, how could we do it? But it's, it's such a crunch time uh, for yeah. us, for the magazine, and some different factors came together that didn't uh, allow us to go. But then we see these pictures of, okay, here's Roy Underhill up on the stage holding a copy of David Pye's book, and he's surrounded by, you know, old tool chests, and we're like,
1: oh, yeah, why aren't we there? Yeah, and standing there with Patrick Edwards, and yeah. Don Williams, and Peter Follensby, and you know, uh, Corey Loftheim, all these people that are uh, our heroes, our woodworking heroes, right. they're all there. Oh, man, I wish we could have been.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So, maybe next year.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So, uh, away from future plans and things going on now, uh, our discussion topic this week is setting up a hand tool workshop. Yeah. A few different things come to mind when we talk about setting up a hand tool workshop, things, you know, logistics, layout, all kinds of things. But let's start with uh, talking about. Um, what sort of workshops we've we've been in or worked in in the past? Mm-hmm.
1: What is your experience? How did you get started? Or, um, I've had a, a few different workshops that I've had. Um, it's th- that I've worked in rather. Um, it's funny. Uh, the first workshop that was just mine, not one that I shared with other people working uh, for them, but my own workshop was. I think it was an eight by 10 shed Ooh. <laughs> that was behind the rental house that my wife and I had. And I shared it with um, the lawnmower mm-hmm. and yep. the sleds and you know, the winter sleds <laughs> and you know, the rake and all that kind of stuff. So if you picture it, eight feet by 10 feet and I have a lawnmower on the floor and I had a little, um, little tiny workbench. Um, it had lights in it. Um, which was great. Sounds nice. A little tiny window. Um, but and I was actually trying to do furniture restoration in it, so I could only fit, like, a chair, a chair. in there.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I can't take
1: your table. It's just too big. Yeah, I did take I one. I can come
0: to your house to work on your table. Yeah,
1: I did actually take one table, and I did it in my house. Uh, so oh, wow. I didn't have any mobile kids at the time, so right. it wasn't a big deal. But, um, yeah, so that was my first shop, and it was not ideal. I mean, what was your first shop? Was it bigger than that or was it? No. So my
0: first one was, was in a basement, you know, as a teenager and it had a little workbench and I bought the little cheap vice to mount on the workbench and I could do some work in there. It had some overhead fluorescence and one little window at the far end and you know, the hot water heater and all that. But I was not in there that much. I was not super interested in woodworking at that point. Um, when I became interested in woodworking, we had moved to a place that had a, a shed, which was actually a fairly large building. Um, so I sat up a bench and a nicer vice and some pegboards, and there was a big window in there, nice. uh, but there was no heat. Mm. And so I, I was feeling really motivated to get out. I was, I was making uh, canoe paddles at the
1: time this was in maine right this was in maine as, yeah.
0: right after we moved up to maine yeah. like uh two thousand ninety nine or two thousand and uh I was making canoe paddles and uh I had a kerosene heater I had an electric heater I had a little propane heater out there but you know if you can't get the temperature up above fifty degrees your varnish is just not gonna cure <laughs> and I found that uh, that part of the equation was was really difficult. Um, I liked the space. Other than that, but uh, heat is necessary for certain aspects of of making things. Yeah,
1: and therefore insulation.
0: Insulation would have been good.
1: That helps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but in you're, so you so now you you have a basement workshop. Yeah, at home.
0: yeah. So I don't know how many uh, folks listening are in the situation. Uh, that I'm in with uh your your workshop is in the basement, there are many pros and cons to uh, to having a workshop in the basement right mm-hmm. uh attached to the house so right now i I really like my my basement workshop even though i 'm str- i struggle with lighting mm-hmm. uh you know with overhead fluorescence um I do have heat down there I have a wood stove which is awesome for throwing scraps in and things like that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's what I have now and
1: yeah. I gratefully accept it. And then 40 hours a week, you're in this little space here, you know, so the, after my garden shed, I moved into this shop here that we're standing in. Oh, that's why this speak. seemed super, this must've
0: seemed super roomy to you.
1: <laughs> oh man. 14 by 17. Yeah. It was yeah. so luxurious. <laughs> and actually the, uh, you know, um, I have a big, uh, kind of picture window in front of my bench and um it's a great space it's got insulation in the walls not a whole lot but some and a heater and it was I remember the first time I got what was it I got the the heater installed and it was winter at that time I just moved in and I remember sitting down going whoa this is amazing i had nothing else you in the just room just
0: turn up the thermostat yeah. and it kicks on yeah, it like and an 85 degrees <laughs> no
1: no um yeah but it was—it felt really luxurious, and it—you know—it's it's ironic because um, I think it really is about your perspective. I was coming from this little unheated shed with terrible light to a fourteen by seventeen space uh, with windows and heat, and I just felt like this was what would I ever need beyond this? Right. Um, and then I've had, I, over the years I've had woodworkers come visit me and I've had some people say, Oh, I remember when I was just starting out in this small space. That's cute. That's yeah. That's great. And uh, maybe someday you'll, yeah, you'll maybe get someday. a real space. Yeah. And, um, I just, it, this space is awesome and it's always worked really well. Um, because I don't use machines in my work, I don't have the same need for floor space. Um, and so i just actually i had more problems because i had furniture that i was restoring so i had you know several pieces of furniture um, so when you get a dining table in it <laughs> kind of takes over a lot of the space and even mike and i working together in this amount of floor space is pretty fine yeah. we have three workbenches yep. here and there's enough space to, to spread out so um, Yeah. yeah the
0: this, the equation part the big part of that equation is if we were trying to run a table saw in here it would be uh, so i've i've worked at a boatyard and you know every shop is kind of focused around the big table saw and some of the operations that we'd use the table saw for like we'd have these 25 foot shear streaks for a sailboat you know 25 foot mahogany That we'd run four or five passes diagonally over the table saw blade to make a cove (laughs) into them so the shop looks like the surface of the moon after this process every surface is completely coated in dust you i mean even running a dust collector and a vacuum right on the table saw it it's everywhere and you you walk out of there and you like wipe your face (laughs) and everything everything is this bright mahogany color oh man um but the fact that we don't have to deal with that, it totally changes the equation. It it greatly reduces um the the footprint that you need for a shop, really. Yeah. Um and the the fact that two of us or even we've had more than
1: just two of us working yeah. in here. Yeah, and, when Robel was up, there were three of us yeah. all working on building two large workbenches in yeah. this little space, it was totally fine.
0: It was so um yeah this space is really great and i i look forward to uh seeing what it will be like moving into our new shop space yeah i feel like that will be like taking a little goldfish and putting it in a great big pond i, I don't know what that's going to be like because that's going to be a, a a great deal more space and yeah.
1: it's 20 24 by 26 two floors so, I mean, we have got feedback from people. They said, oh, man, that's so tiny. You guys are never going to yeah. have enough room. We're like, this is like <laughs> are quadruple you me? what we have. This is right unbelievably uh, yeah. larger. Yeah, so it'll work right, I'm sure.
0: So um, one of the things that we keep coming back to is, is the idea of light. So what are some of the most important
1: elements for you in a hand tool workshop? Uh, working in a hand tool shop, so... You're not going to use any machines at all. We're just talking about someone using hand tools. um, You know, space is great, but what's the most important? Probably the top thing on my list is is really, really obvious, but a serious workbench. Um, It sounds really obvious, but that cannot be overlooked. A a rickety workbench is not going to work. Uh, If you have... You know, if you have a table saw and you have all the, if you're using a lot of machines to, to do your work, then, and you're not going to be using your bench all that much, then it's not as important. But if you don't have those and you're complete, everything that happens is on that bench, that needs right. to be a pretty stout, serious uh, tool, this workbench. So I would say if you're, if you're thinking about setting up a hand tools only shop, and you're going to say, you know, what's like the most, what's the top five most important stuff that I need to think about? I would say, forget the R60 and the walls and all the other stuff. Focus on first, get a really good, serious workbench. Build it yourself or yep. buy one from, you know, um, Mark Hicks that played 11 or Benchcrafted or, you know, wherever, you know, get get yourself a really nice workbench. Um, and that is like number one. Yeah. Regardless of what the situation of the building is, that's number one. Um, but then, like you said, uh, light. Yeah. Light, I think, is number two.
0: Yeah. I, I think I agree. Uh, you know, coming from the, the, uh, my basement hobbit hole kind of workshop, <laughs> where I have, I actually have two windows, they're up, you know, above my head level. So everything else is fluorescent, or I have these little movable incandescent lights. Um, but whenever I started in here working with Joshua, uh, with all this natural light, I was just amazed. It it totally changes, uh, everything. You can see all these details in a surface that are completely washed out by overhead lights.
1: Well, yeah, I was going to say, that's the thing. It's not,
0: we're not talking quantity of light. Right. Yeah. More is not what you're looking for. It's quality of light.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's horizontal raking window light Yeah, that, the, that your natural light is coming in at the level of your bench so that it's bringing out all those details because of that angle uh, that it's that's shining in that's what is really important um so if we had you know a thousand fluorescents over our bench that's not going to be a thousand times better um it's going to it's actually going to make it hard to right. see the the surface texture that informs when to stop planning. Yeah.
0: I mean, so often in here, when we're working, we will intentionally turn off the overhead lights so that we can see details better. Right. Uh, you know, in certain times of the day, the afternoon, when the light is, is just right in here, um, killing the overheads is, it improves it dramatically Yeah. because you suddenly can see the definition. You can see marks much more clearly. Uh, you can see the, the grain in the surface of the wood. And so, um, natural window lighting is super important. And I'm still, uh, if anyone has uh, advice or if they've worked a, a better lighting solution for basement workshops, yeah. let us know because that is a struggle for sure. In the summertime, we have kind of a walkout basement, but I can open the big double doors and get some natural light in. But in the wintertime, I don't have that option. You could do that. I mean, I could do that. <laughs>
1: Crank the wood I stove. Could and
0: get it going and just let the snow blow in. And
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so if you're going to invest in a new shop, I'd say workbench and windows. Yep. Get nice, big uh, windows. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say I like having windows on uh, multiple sides of the building. It, you know, I think people often ask, what's the best side? And really it's nice to have... Well, I said a serious workbench. I should have actually said two workbenches. Um, And you you make a little rickety one for the second one. It's fine. But I have found, um, you know, people start collecting benches. They start making more than (laughs) one. and They feel like it's a problem. But we have three benches in our space right now. Yeah. And I I have a hard time working with only one bench because I... Actually, I have that low bench too. I have a a, a staked low bench. that's four... So I have four benches in this little thing and I'm always moving my tools and setting them on here or I'm partially assembling um, legs in a rail. And so I want to set that subassembly off to the side. So I put it on the other bench and I have them, you know, set up for different operations yeah. and stuff really, you know, build yourself a little Nicholson for a second bench or something, yeah. just a dimensional pine um, and having those two benches that's where you're going to want to invest. So, get a couple of benches, get windows, um, and I think the the last thing then, you know, all this is kind of assuming that you're going to take care of the the physical needs that you'd have with if you live in Maine. Right. Boy, it's nice to have some heat. Yep. <laughs> um, so those things are all. I'm kind of assuming that you would be taking care of that. If you don't, if you if you're working in a garage. You can put on a thick jacket, or you can try to figure out a garage heater or something. Um, it's workable, but plan your winters around all your stock prep
0: for the rest of the year, <laughs> so that you're out there, you're doing not so precise work, and you're just working hard, and you'll stay warm. You'll be fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, just wait to to uh, you know assemble all your joinery until yeah. the next season.
0: Yeah, because hide glue frozen doesn't flow very well either. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Um, but I have, um, I've actually, I've, I've been working in this space here, which is, it's a 15 minute drive from my house. Um, and it's worked out pretty fine. I, I like having my business a little bit separate from my house. It helps just keep me focused on, uh, cause we homeschool. So, right. Have, you know, kids during the day running around and stuff. And I mean, learning, learning <laughs> all day long. And so, you know, I just, it's helpful just to focus on my work at that time, um, but I, I know that people have talked about workshops at home being a really great Asset to them and so um, well you have a, your workshop is at home in your right. basement Yeah, what would you say are the pros and cons to to that situation having it in your or attached to your house?
0: Yeah, I um well first of all I'll, I'll start out with um, Especially with young kids uh, It is nearly it is very difficult. I'll say to have a a, a power tool oriented workshop in your house you've got nap times you've got bedtimes that are early usually the kid's bedtime coincides exactly with that time that you're suddenly free to go to the workshop so if you want to go down and fire up the dust collector fire up the table saw no one's sleeping upstairs Uh, tempers are flaring everyone's getting upset you might be downstairs in your you know sound insulated bliss making all kinds of sawdust but You don't know what kind of carnage you're going to walk into upstairs. (laughs) So, um, uh, hand tools are quiet. They are quiet. People can be eating at your dining room table right over your head and you're just quietly planing away. You know, a a rip saw is a little louder, but it is, it is much, a much different sound. It is not an interfering sound at all to, you know, the comings and goings, uh, in the house so in that regard um i think that if your ha- if your workshop is attached directly to your house that hand tools
1: offer a very clear benefit yeah yeah that makes sense but Definitely. uh so I mean I, I mean I think that as far as kids in the shop uh, i have for many for a number of years i had uh i brought my oldest boy into the shop every tuesday night we'd have shop night and i'd you know have him bang some nails into a piece of wood and that kind of thing um and i was actually living uh, considerably closer so it was like a two-minute drive right oh, around the wow. corner to my shop and i could do that really easily um and now you know i got three kids and it's harder to right. take one or two of them off for a quick yeah. little shop night um and so that i think is a downside that if you value teaching your kids these things the commute at the end of the day, when you all come home from work or school or whatever, all your activities, and you have that little slice of time right before dinner or maybe right after dinner before bedtime, yeah. Loading yeah. them all up, putting on their winter jackets, driving the fifteen minutes over to the shop, getting them set up, take off their wet boots. Yeah, here's a hammer and a nail. Yeah, go for it. Okay, but bedtime. And it's bedtime. Yep. Uh, that's really been hard to to figure that out. So you know, a shop that's attached to the house or right near is if you could walk over in two minutes for a 10 minute shop yeah. night with the kids, that would be a great benefit. And I mean, I think for me, the ideal situation for my particular needs um, of having to work all day, every day and focus, but then have that close and immediate access is to have a separate building on my property. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I have now. My commute is, uh, starting in 2018 here now this spring or summer my commute is walking through the pine trees up to the shop
0: just like Roy underhill just like (laughs) yeah yeah all right just like axe in hand
1: yeah Um, up in the stream yeah walk around the pond and hop up the hill so um i think that's going to be for me that's the sweet spot is right there at home but a little bit of distance that i can um i can focus so yeah um yeah, that's that's what I would look for. But um, I've never actually had a shop like right inside the house. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds like that would be hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's got its pros and cons, but I find for the most part, I I enjoy it a lot. And I think the very factor you're talking about, the distance, uh, if I had to go 15 minutes to my workshop, I would probably never get anything done. Yeah around the house so uh i'm sure my, my wife is glad that i have a workshop in the basement yeah um so period shops hand tool shops um like uh, i have this quote here um uh, eric sloan talking about the domine shop and he says uh for a visitor walking into the shop he says the visitor's first reaction is usually what a primitive shop yet the magnificent table standing in the center of the room was made in it um, so you have this this perception nowadays walking into a a, a period shop um, where people maybe who don't don't know so much about the way things are made they go wow this is really really crude um, but there are certain aspects certain virtues of that shop that are really um, a, an integral part of the hand tool process and there are also parts you know of of uh those shops that maybe weren't as ideal for it so what would you say about um period shops how how did they how were they built around the hand tool process and also um how were they maybe less than awesome in those ways
1: um i guess with the to the first question um how did they have it set up you know around hand tools specifically i think what you find is um one of the benefits one of the good things that these shops had was natural window light. Um, of course, they all had workbenches that were good set up and you know great to work on. But natural window light was something that they really knew the benefits of, and they really took advantage of it. Um, so what what you find is they kind of they have very few windows, typically, most of them had very few windows, but they placed them. Very strategically, or at least move their workbench to a strategic place that it made sense that they got the most amount of light. So you see, the the layout and the design of their shop is um, informed by that major benefit. Um, in our new workshop we're building, we have no lighting, uh, new, no electric lighting downstairs. We're right. going to have um, we're going to be using only natural window light uh, for all of our work. Uh, except we have a lot more windows than yeah. was typical of the period.
0: Yeah, behind me right now are two very large piles of old, uh, the old wavy glass uh, windows. These are, what are these, uh, six six by six? Yeah, six over sixes. Um, we, we picked up the, a whole bunch of those at uh, a place called the Trash and Treasure Barn. <laughs> and uh, Good mix of both. We are going to be restoring those and using them and um many many windows downstairs basically the entire perimeter of the downstairs is windows
1: yeah and i I think that's going to be it'll be like the best of both it's going to have all this natural window light but more of it more than was typical of the period um so that's i think the best way to do it um but you know i the other thing that i think that I guess the downside I would see is not that many period shops had heat, right? Um, and it's a I mean a huge fire hazard
0: <laughs> uh, for one thing. I mean you're right. picture generating piles of shavings every day and just pushing it off into the corner, and next then to the getting, wood stove. Getting some rickety old wood stove or even a fireplace. Yeah, right. You know? Exactly. And yeah. Uh, Spit all it takes is one ember s- s- kicked out, and oh, that's man. the end of that.
1: There are definitely a number of stories, and uh, Thomas Chippendale's uh, major, major shop burned down. A, a bunch of shops burned down as a relatively uh, shockingly common yeah. uh, situation. So, that was a major downside uh, that they had to keep heat out of that space. Um, I guess you get acclimated you know what would Wim right. Hof do as, right. a, <laughs> exactly. as a period just, captain just make. sit and breathe and yeah. then um, but I you know when you read period accounts I'm not sure that they really particularly enjoyed that I think that was uh, a, a downside for sure um, right. so and and also just working yeah, sure you can you know mind over matter just sort of bear through it but your fingers when they're frozen when it's negative 10 out your fingers don't work very well right (laughs) so imagine trying to do this this work that requires uh, this uh, this precise touch and this careful work dexterity yeah and your fingers aren't really cooperating that makes it really hard to work yeah so a heat yeah is a a big big improvement I think
0: yeah and um, another thing uh, pretty common in workshops these days uh, you know, you have a, gr- a garage built or barn built, they come in, they, they pour a slab and you put up a stick built structure. So now you're, you're walking around on concrete, right? You know, what happens when you drop a chisel? Yeah. It's, it's done, uh, for, you know, you have some work to do. You drop an edge tool. Uh, I've dropped my, I have a nice Lee Nielsen low angle block plane that went onto a concrete floor <laughs> one time and I've just took me a while to recover. Uh, um, So that's one of the reasons why you decided to not just put the frame, the timber frame that we raised on a slab. Right. Um, to actually have wooden floor.
1: Yeah. Right. And I actually, so I, it was interesting because when I was designing my shop, um, I, I, in college, I got, had a back injury. And so I have some, some discs that are crushed in my back. So I'm actually unusually sensitive to the work surfaces that I'm standing on. Um, so I'm sure many of you can relate to that, uh, back problems. Yeah. Um, so I have to be pretty careful. But I had a friend who was building a shop at the same time. And he poured a slab and built a shop immediately on the slab. The f- The slab is his floor. And uh, at first, I think, you know, he was telling me, oh, it saves a lot of money. You just have it down. The foundation, the floor is done. There you go. It's just a shop. Not a big deal. And then, like... A few weeks into working in the shop, he dropped one of his favorite old classic Stanley hand planes on the oh. ground and broke it. And then, six months later, he had back surgery because it, it, standing in that shop had all this these prior oh, back injuries flare up. And yeah. he said, "Don't do this," you know. And, <laughs> and I, so I, fortunately, I didn't even have that option, anyways. Um, so I think not standing on concrete is a really good idea. There are those. Um, fatigue mats and that kind of thing, but yeah, it's not the same. Yep.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. So. The 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 natural give of a wooden floor is uh, the benefits really add up yeah. after months and
1: years of use. But as far as like setup of a shop, you know, I know you look at paintings of period shops, they have to me. I think it's a it's a huge benefit, and I've been doing this. Ever since I've been in this shop, to have uh, tools hanging up all over the walls. Yeah. And I think that that's really is conducive. Well, there are two sides of it. One, the tools are right there. Mm -hmm. If you have a a small shop on purpose, uh, the tools are right within reach on the walls. Yeah. The other side of that is that tool has a location. Right. (laughs) And you know where that tool goes. And so, you know, you're not digging through a pile of shavings trying to find that tool that fell because you have it, you know, everything has a place. Um, so I think that's a big part of, you know, if you're thinking about how to set up, how to organize a hand tool shop, I would say I do have a tool chest that I store some things in, and that's good for longer term storage. Um, but get those tools hanging up on your walls, get them accessible. So that it's just a, it's an environment that's conducive to building um, and doesn't you know? Wasting time trying to find that. Yeah. Where is that
0: dang chisel again? That is the biggest waste of time for me. Yeah. Is trying to find that. Where did I put that? I know it was right here. It was in this chest. Where is it? Yeah. And uh, yeah, that is an extremely important thing. Um, one one piece of advice that I've heard you say this several times, and I'm I'm really trying to apply it to myself as well, is to never apologize for your shop. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that that is such a great piece of advice. Um, your shop is your shop. Yeah. Your shop is not someone else's shop. Someone else might have the most awesome shop set up in the world. They've built a log lodge uh, overlooking the Rocky Mountains and they have <laughs> all the, the most amazing tools. And they come and you have your, your basement or backyard shed with one window. And uh, never apologize for that because that's your shop. Yeah. And you're doing your work in there and you're you're getting it set up for, you know, so that you can work efficiently and you are learning to use that space and you have grown into that space. And uh, so I've taken that to heart because I think that's good advice.
1: Yeah. And I mean, every shop, no matter what the cir- uh, circumstances, has major benefits. Right. Um, and the, uh, a friend of ours, um, Spencer Nelson, uh, he was, he's for a long time done work in his when he was living in new york city he was uh building furniture in his kitchen Mm -hmm. and i remember his instagram account you know what did it say it said something about you know hand tool apartment woodworking or something like that and so spencer you know really was able to figure out uh how to work on this tiny little workbench in his kitchen i remember seeing a picture i think what was going on is he was building a table and he braced the top of the table against his refrigerator because he was planing it oh my goodness <laughs> it's like a the that's biggest awesome. planing stop ever yeah i may have misinterpreted that <laughs> picture but you know it, it was inspiring to me because spencer is building some beautiful stuff yeah in this tiny tiny little apartment and i think that that's a, a really important thing to to look at people that are doing that kind of thing well and hear from them uh how to make that work yeah. because you for hand tools you don't need that much space at all right. you can use them anywhere yeah in um in issue four coming up we have Charles Hummel uh, he's written uh, an essay about the business of uh, woodworking and he you know he's Charles Hummel is the guy that was focused on uh, the Domini shop and did a lot of research um, really really exceptional scholar uh, and so uh Hummel's written this piece and he's talking about the Domini shop and what it looked like. And in this article, we're going to reprint the, um, the Library of Congress has the, the survey blueprint drawing of the house and the footprint of the shop and the height of the ceilings and all this. And there were three generations of craftsmen working um, probably two at a time in that space. And it's, I can't remember now, it's 14 by 12 by 12. 20 or something like that i don't remember the exact square footage but it's tiny it's really Mm -hmm. small um and that was it when you look at the sizes of period shops um what was recorded that's 500 square feet is a nice generous size shop for three guys to be building tables i mean that was how it was um and that's not because it you know people just couldn't afford space is because they didn't really need this space right for hand tools you don't need it right but for a machine shop it yeah your needs go your square footage needs go way yeah.
0: up yeah yeah because you are um you know juggling machines if you you center the orbit around the table saw but right. then you need to have either movable platforms for everything else or enough wall space for everything and uh yeah takes takes up some room
1: yeah definitely Well, thank you for listening. Yeah, Uh, the Mortis and Tenon podcast is something that we have been really uh, enjoying thinking through. What's the next podcast episode going to be? What we want to talk about? What we can do helps us work through a lot of these things. So, thank you for listening. Uh, We we love hearing your feedback. Uh, If you have any suggestions about uh, future episodes that you'd like to hear, that things you want to hear us talk about or work through. Um, send those things along you can leave a comment below or send us an email uh, at the the address on our website com. and uh, if you haven't yet subscribed uh, feel free to subscribe uh, to itunes or wherever you get your podcasts Uh, sign up and we update every two or three weeks or so and uh, we'll uh, look forward to to next time yeah thanks for listening thank you